If you could, please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from uh, the book of Jonah. This week we'll be bringing chapter 3 to its conclusion as we will be looking at Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. Please, brothers and sisters, if you would then, hear with me the reading of God's Word. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. The last week I pointed out that, that God is a, is a God who delights in showing mercy to sinners. He is a God who desires to be reconciled to sinners. He is a God who is ready to be reconciled to the sinner. This is why He sends forth heralds all over the world to declare the, the words of God because he, he loves to redeem a people. He loves to glorify Himself through exhibiting His grace towards sinners and pardoning their sin. But He does not do so right, until the sinner comes before God in faith and in repentance. Right? And this is what the Ninevites have come to learn. And they've come to learn it in a very short period of time, haven't they? But that's because a short period of time is all they had. Yet 40 days, <coughs> excuse me, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so in that short time, what the Ninevites have proven by what they have done is that they understood the message. They understood that they were sinners. They understood that they were deserving of eternal punishment for sin committed against an eternal God. They understood that the gods they served were no gods at all. And the only one true God was Elohim, the God of the Israelites. And it was this God who held in His hand, and in His hand alone, the power to destroy or to deliver. Right? He, in His hand and in His hand alone was the power to preserve life or to take it. And they only came to understand this because God in His Rich grace and mercy sends his prophet Jonah to make it known to them. Right? Either they would remain obstinate in their rebellious nature against God and be destroyed, or they would see their wicked ways and they would turn to God in repentance in hopes that God would relent. And what did we see last week? The Ninevites repented. They repented. Now, we said that that repentance was driven by two things, wasn't it? It was driven by fear. It's natural to us when we're told we're, we're going to die to want to live. And so they, it was driven by fear. They wanted to continue to live. They wanted their life preserved. But as we also said, for many of the Ninevites, what, what caused them to believe and to turn and to cry out to God was also they did so out of hope. Right? Not only fear, but hope drove them to God. And it's that that hope that we hear in the decree of the king after he calls them to cover themselves in sackcloth and to sit in ashes and to cry out mightily to God and to turn from their wicked ways. He said in verse 9, Who knows? 
God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. We need to see that is hope. That is hope that the God of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, would see that they have turned from their wickedness, not just in its outward manifestation or in its outward form, but their hope is that God would likewise see their hearts, that he would see the inner working of their heart, that he would see that true conversion has taken place in them. That there has been an inward change from loving sin to despising it. They're hoping that God would see that what's blossoming up inside of their hearts was something they never experienced before, which was love for God. It was love for God, which manifested itself in what? In abstinence from sin. In abstinence from the continuing on in the sinful lifestyle that, that they lived. And this is in fact what we see then takes place in the lives of the Ninevites. Because surely the Ninevites didn't get one over on God, did they? They didn't get one over on God, nor could they have, because God sees what man cannot see. God sees what you and I are unable to see, and that is the heart of man. God is able to see beyond the chest cavity into what is actually inside of your heart. This is what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. If you remember this, they're looking for a, a king. Right, to replace Saul. And, and so Samuel is sent to the, the, the house of Jesse and he has all these sons. And he sees one of the sons who, who he thinks, oh, th- this guy is going to make a good king. But what does God say to Samuel? He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Speaking of Iliad, he has rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Brothers and sisters, know this today. God is looking down upon us. And He sees inside of each and every one of your hearts this day. He sees new heart, corrupt heart. And there is no tricking God into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot fool God in order to escape judgment. God surely will know. And so we can see with the Ninevites, surely if this was fake repentance, they wouldn't have been delivered and God would have remained sure and firm in His Word and He would have destroyed them. But instead, their deliverance, God sparing the lives of the Ninevites, was God's testimony not only to them, but to us and to all who would come to believe of what God will do for all of those who in sincerity and in humility of heart will turn away from their sin and turn towards God in faith and repentance. That is what he displays here today. This is why we read then in verse 10 that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented. Now, this passage and passages like this oftentimes cause a lot of confusion. And they cause a lot of trouble for Christians when they read this. Right? Texts like ours today and texts like it stir up a lot of questions in the, in the minds and the hearts of the saints. Right? So does God know that the Ninevites are actually going to repent when He sends Jonah there? If He doesn't know that, is God then truly omniscient? Right? Can God actually learn something new? 
Are there things that happen or take place outside of God's control? Right? If God relented, then did God change His plan or adapt it according to the plan of His own creation? Right? All of these questions, all of these concerns kind of arise when we read this text. Now, the title of our sermon this morning is right, God Spares the Ninevites, which which tells us right away that, that something happened, right? Something changed because he was uh, proclaiming destruction to them and, and now they have been delivered. And so as we consider then, what, what is actually going on in our text this morning? What is it that, that God actually did in our text? Uh, we need to, to start at who God is in order to understand what God does. Okay? So that's going to be our first point then this morning. Our first point will be the character of God. And our first point is the character of God. Anytime we approach texts like this, we must begin with who God is. That drives the text. Who is God? And then we interpret those things said about God in light of who God is. We also have to understand as we approach texts like this, that when the Bible speaks to us about God, or when we read in the Bible what God has revealed to us about Himself, He speaks to us in what we might call analogical discourse. He speaks to us in in analogical terms, which is to say this, that there is a similarity in what God says to man, but there is also a dissimilarity. One example of that 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 we can always give is to say say that God is good and man is good is to not say the same thing. That's analogical language that we're using there. There is similarity when we say those things, but there's also great difference when we say that. Right? Our goodness can grow or decrease, right? Our goodness isn't inherent in who we are. We derive our goodness from God. We don't say that about God when we call God good, do we? No, God just is goodness. He is goodness. His goodness cannot decrease, neither can His goodness increase. And so, there is a way in which, when we speak about God being good and man being good, there's similarity, But also we need to understand that there is also difference. There is also difference. Calvin likened God's revelation to man as God speaking baby talk to us. God is is speaking baby talk through His Word to us. He, He speaks true words. He speaks the truth. But He accommodates His speech to the capacity of His hearers. How else, brothers and sisters, I ask, can an can infinite men and women understand an infinite God unless the infinite God speaks in finite terms to us. And so we need to understand that as we approach the text. We need to remember that we cannot reduce God to the level of those bare words. We cannot reduce God to the level of those bare words because not only is God incomprehensible, We can't fully wrap our our minds around God. He is incomprehensible. But He is also what we say, or what we call, ineffable. Which is to say, we don't even have all the the right words to speak about God in our finite language. So not only is He incomprehensible, but He's ineffable. Which is why we can't just reduce God to human words. And brothers and sisters, you know, Scripture does this all the time. It uses figures of speech and metaphors in talking about God, and we read it, and we read it how we're supposed to read it all the time, and we don't even know that. We don't even understand that we are actually reading this text 
first in light of who we know God to be. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In Psalm chapter 17, verse 8, David says to, to his Lord, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, who here, this is a rhetorical question, actually believes God is some sort of bird? None of us read that and, and believe God is a bird, right? We don't believe that God has literal eyes and literal wings. And why, why do none of us read it in that manner? Because we know that, that God from John chapter 4 verse 24 is a spirit. That He does not have a body like you and I. And so we do this all the time. We read these texts naturally. We come to this and we know. It's not speaking literally. It's not speaking about literal eyes and, and literal wings. But rather it's communicating something very true though to us, isn't it? It's communicating to us that God sees all things. He's asking God, please keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep your tender, loving care upon me. Keep me under the protection of your wings. He's calling out to God as His guardian, as His protector, as His refuge. That's the truth that's trying to communicate to us. And we, that's what we suck out of that passage, don't we? We don't, we don't come out of there thinking God is some sort of bird. So then why, the question is, do we find so much difficulty in doing that in other passages about God? Right? Why do we find so much difficulty in doing that with passages that speak about God in His emotions? Or God repenting, or in our text today, God relenting. Right? We must start, when we come to a text like this, with who God is. We must come to this text looking at what is the character of God and what do we know about the character of God? That God is immutable. God is immutable, which means He does not change. Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, we read this. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Not only, though, is God immutable, but he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 14. In speaking about the creation of the world, we read this. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him, that is God, the way of understanding? The answer is no one. I like how the King James Version translates uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 18, which reads this, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. There's nothing that happens outside of of what God has decreed. He knows everything already from the beginning of the world that He has decreed. Not only is all a wisdom and knowledge God's, but also the power to accomplish all that God has decreed belongs to God as well. This is why David can say in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of Him who works all things according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will. Without this foundation, brothers and sisters, you are going to come to texts like this and you are going to be in all sorts of trouble. And let me tell you, there are many commentators that you can read on this who, who do that very thing, who come to this text and say, 
Well, God learned something new. God changed his mind based on what his creation did. But why do they do that? It's because they don't start with God. Rather, they, they flatten God out and make him just like his creation, don't they? They bring God down to, those, to the words used. And then they also don't read the text in light of all that Scripture says about God. Rather, they, they read the text in isolation from all other things. But we need to understand that a God who can learn anything new is no God at all. A God whose mind changes based on the whims of His creation is no God at all. And so when we come to texts like this, we must be certain that we do not assign or ascribe human imperfection to God ever. We remove that from our interpretation as soon as we come to texts like this. And yet, it doesn't answer the question, does it? It doesn't answer the question. It tells us what it doesn't say. But what does it mean then that that God relented after the Ninevites turned from their evil ways? Okay, we understand that that in the essence of God and in who God is in and of himself, he does not change. But why does our text say that when they turned from their evil ways, God relented? Right? That, that seems to be or imply a change. So what change was involved? And what, what truth does that change communicate to us? And, and what is this text in trying to tell us about who God is? Well, first, brothers and sisters, we need to see that this change is a change in God's outward actions towards the Ninevites as perceived by them. It is a change in the outward action of God towards the Ninevites as perceived by them. They they went from those who were in fear and terror hearing this message from Jonah pronouncing that they are going to be destroyed to all of a sudden right, feeling and experiencing the grace and love and mercy of God and now knowing that they have been delivered from that. And so it's it's an outward change in what they perceive from God. Right? That is the change that occurs. All the while, we know that God has determined all that will happen from the beginning to the end. And so that this result was the result that God had decreed from all of eternity. So that what the Ninevites did, we need to see, did not alter God's plan at all. But instead, they did the very thing that God had planned them for them to do from all of eternity. Right? That's what occurs here. Also, we need to see that it is not because they repented that God relented. In the sense that they force God's hand. Right? That, that, that they did something that now makes God change His plan. Remember, they were deserving of death and condemnation for their sin. Right? They didn't merit anything by their actions, but rather, God intended that in sending Jonah to them, that Jonah would be the, the, the instrument He would use to bring the Ninevites to repentance. Okay, Dr. Joel Beakey, on his sermon on Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, He says, God allows repentance to be the key to his heart. God allows repentance to be the key to his heart. We need to understand that that is all of grace. The the Ninevites' faith was grace. The Ninevites' repentance was grace. It was all unmerited favor. It was nothing they did. It was was God who chose to to send Jonah to them to bring about repentance in their hearts. He sent Jonah there to be the key that opens their hearts to Him and His heart to them. Right? It is all of grace. It is God who says, I will open my heart to you. 
I'm sending Jonah, which will cause you to repent. Right? I give you repentance. Right? It is all of God. It is all of grace. Their repentance is all of grace. Right? They didn't work. They didn't earn God relenting. Also, what we need to see is that God sent Jonah knowing that it would bring about faith and repentance and that their repentance and that God's relenting was simply the fulfilling of God's uh, um, decree from all of eternity. And that decree from all of eternity was that Nineveh shall be saved. Right? That is what we see going on here in the text. Right? In God sending the prophet Jonah, he sends him knowing that their repentance and, and his relenting was simply a fulfillment of what he has decreed from all of eternity, and that was that Nineveh shall be saved. And so what does this then teach us about God? What does it teach us about God? It teaches us that God is a, a, a God of compassion and mercy, doesn't it? It teaches us that God is providentially guiding all of human history to its rightful ends. And the Ninevites experience that in God's outward actions to them. And so to the Ninevites, from their perspective, God does relent, doesn't He? And what this text does, though, for, for those of you here today who, who believe that God is immutable and omniscient and, and omnipotent, it serves to reassure us that God today, just as He was yesterday and just as He will be forevermore, is reigning in heaven. And that there is nothing that occurs on earth that surprises Him. And that as He reigns exalted in glory, He is well pleased as He looks down upon the earth and sees everything come to pass just as He has decreed it to. And so we ought to rejoice knowing that what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10 is true, which is this, God has declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Those who think that their actions can in some way change the mind of God lack peace and comfort, really. They lack peace and comfort. Right? Our comfort and our peace is in knowing that God has purposed our redemption and that nothing that we do can change that. Right? That... that we will never fall from grace because God will not allow us to fall from grace. That we will never lose our faith ultimately because God will never allow us to lose our faith ultimately. That God, by the aid of the Spirit, will continue to convict us of sin and bring us to repentance and to work sanctification in our hearts until Christ returns. And yet, and yet, even for the redeemed, you will experience what seems to be the displeasure of God when you fall into sin here on earth. And yet, even when that occurs, what you must know is that although God's outward actions towards you may change, although what you perceive to be true might change, God is a God who does not change, which means God's love for you will never change. It also means that His wrath that was one, at one time against us has been put away for all time because of what Christ did. And that itself, even when we forget about it, will never change. Right? Perhaps if people understood this more, right? if they understood the character of God more, they wouldn't live their spiritual lives in influx all the time. Like, 
I had a good day today. God really loves me today. And then the next day, you know, I committed some sin, so perhaps He loves me less. And then maybe you go a week or a month in sin and you say, God has lost all His love for me. He doesn't, he doesn't love me at all. You see, brothers and sisters, we need to understand right, who God is. Because if you know who God is, it brings you peace and comfort. Because you know that for the saint, what that means is that, that God's love, even though you sin, never lessens for you. It never lessens for you. But do you also know what that means? That God's love never grows for you either. God's love doesn't change. It doesn't fluctuate with with how you're living. He doesn't love you less one day and love you more because He already loves you in all of love's fullness. He already loves you in all of love's fullness. He cannot love you no more. This is what Jonah knew. This is why Jonah then goes to Nineveh and declares this message because he understands and he knows the character of God. And as we'll see next week, it's the character of God that angers Jonah, isn't it? Look at chapter 4, verse 2 quickly with me. And Jonah prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, Jonah knew what would result when he, when he went off to Nineveh. He knew what would result. He knew what the message that he was sent forth to declare would do. Which ought to testify to us as well. That this is the message, brothers and sisters, that we too are to be declaring because we know what God does in and through this message. This takes us into our, our second point this morning. Point number two, which is a choice message. A choice message. That word choice, when used as an adjective, it means superior. It means first class, top quality, first rate. The choice is anything means the best of it, doesn't it? Choices means the best. And that's what I mean then about the content of Jonah's sermon when I call it a choice message. Right? I call it a choice message because in Jonah's sermon, what we have is a divine sermon. Right? We have a sermon spoken to Jonah by God Himself. There are many other words that God spoke to Jonah that our text does not contain, but, but these eight words are given for us to know. Right? God thought it best for us to know these eight words that we looked at some weeks ago, which was what? Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown which at its very core is what? At its core, what, what message is this? It is a, a message directed to the Ninevites, calling them to repent for the forgiveness of sin. That's what that message is. And they got the message, didn't they? And yet, what we need to see is that, is that this same message, we see this thread throughout all of the Scriptures. Right? This is what the sacrificial system was meant to point towards, right? Their need... To repent for the forgiveness of sin. This is what the prophets are continually being sent to Israel for. To teach them and to call them to repent for the forgiveness of sin. 
This is what the forerunner of Christ came to call people to, didn't he? John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 verse 4. John appeared proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This is what Jesus calls his apostles to do. In Luke chapter 24 verses 46 and 47. We read this. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all the nations. And then what do we see throughout the text as we read after the ascension of Christ? This is what the apostles preach. Peter in Acts 3.19 Repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive into the restoring of all things. And so why is this message so important? Why is this the choicest message to declare to the, to the nations? Because it's a divine message. It's a divine message given to Jonah and now recorded for us in the divine word that we might proclaim it to the nations as well. Right? This is the message God uses to turn the wicked hearts of men away from sin and towards God. Right? This is the message He used to turn the Ninevites to Himself. This is the same message He used to turn the Israelites to Himself and the Gentiles to Himself. And this is the same message He used towards you to turn you to Himself if you, in fact, are Christ. So I ask you here today, why have so many gone astray from this message? Why have so many gone astray from this message if this is the choice message? Why do so many look to reinvent new messages if this is the choicest of them all? You see, if, if we desire God's glory and the salvation of our neighbors, if that was truly important to us, this is the message we would declare. Right? For those who are concerned with numbers or, pop, or popularity, right, they might preach something else, but they must know as well that when you preach anything else other than what God's Word calls us to, you preach it without Christ, and you preach it without the power of God behind it, using it to convert and to save sinners. And so if we truly love our neighbor and love God, we are, we are going to use the message God tells us in His Word, He blesses. And He doesn't bless it because there's something special in us or in our, way, in, or in our speech or in our preaching, but rather He simply blesses it because this is what He is well pleased to do. These words He says, right? this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin is what He uses to work faith and repentance in the hearts of sinners. And so if we want people in this world to be saved, we need to understand pardon will only come through repentance. So if we exclude the message of repentance, what you need to see that you are doing is you are excluding people from the kingdom of God. Right? That is what we do when we preach another message. Right? You, you are preaching people out of the kingdom through works righteousness preaching or through easy believism preaching or through health and wealth preaching. And so I ask you here today, what interest do you have in your own neighbor's salvation or eternity? What interest do you have in your own children's salvation and eternity? What interest do you have in your unsafe family members or friends' salvation and eternity? What is it that you have spoken to them and said to them that has either helped them or hurt them? Right? Have you, out of a desire to, to bring them into the kingdom by any means possible, have you used another message other than repentance for the forgiveness of sins to do so? 
if we want to help people, if we love people, we're going to follow the pattern of Jonah. We're going to preach like Jonah preached. And we're going to obey as Jonah obeyed. And we see what resulted, right? God used those words in this message to save Nineveh. And he promises to do the very same thing today. This takes us then to our third and our final point this morning, which is confronting every generation with condemnation. Confronting every generation with condemnation. And I title this this way because what we need to see is that this is what's constantly taking place as this message goes forth, generation after generation after generation. This is what Nineveh is confronted with. If you do not repent, you will be destroyed. And so we need to see Jonah preached a condemning message to the Ninevites. And that's that same message that's, that's preached even today, but today it's preached with so much more clarity, is it not? Because the Ninevites were on the other side of the cross, right? Today it's preached with so much more clarity after the resurrection of Christ, which means what? That when it's preached to the people... It brings with it even more condemnation for those who reject in light of the fuller revelation of Christ. This is what Jesus Himself says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater Jonah is here. You know, there are some who read our text and believe that the repentance of the Ninevites was not real at all. I think this text proves otherwise. Or else, how else can the Ninevites stand up with Jesus Christ and this here is an allusion to the final judgment and be con- stand in condemnation of, of the Israelites who had rejected Jesus? It's because they're going to be standing on the right side of it when, when, when Christ returns. And they are going to be standing with the saints judging those who rejected Christ. And yet, if the Ninevites believe Jonah with such little light, what Jesus is really saying here is is how much more ought you to believe now that you have the the fullness of the light? You have the light here before your eyes. And so why should the Ninevites believe? Well, because Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Now, this is an incredible thing to say in the sense that here what we have in our text is really Jesus acting as the greatest interpreter of Scripture. Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament in light of himself, teaching us likewise how how we are to interpret the Old Testament. And how then is Jesus the the greater than Jonah? I'm going to give you four ways in which Christ is greater than Jonah uh, very, very briefly so that we can see why there will be greater condemnation on those who are confronted with the message and who do not repent and turn to Christ. And so first, Jesus is greater than Jonah with respect to his person. Jesus is greater than Jonah in respect to his person. Jonah was a sinner. Jesus was the Son of God. There was no comparison. So Jesus is greater than Jonah with, with respect to his person. Jesus is also greater than Jonah with respect to his office and the execution of his office. Although Jonah had the esteemed privilege of being a prophet of God, Jonah still rebelled against God, didn't he? He still sinned against God. He still gave Nineveh reason to mock him and to to not believe in God. They could say, look at his own prophet doesn't believe. 
Jesus gave no one any reason to mock God or to not believe His words. Being the greatest prophet who ever lived, and yet they still didn't believe. And people today having the Word, which contains for us the the, the prophetic words of Christ, still don't believe. Jesus also is greater than Jonah because Jesus has a greater right to call sinners to repentance than Jonah did. The Ninevites did nothing to harm Jonah. They didn't sin against Jonah. Jonah was simply doing what God told him to do. But Jesus has every right to call sinners to repentance because they, in fact, have sinned against the Son of God. They have sinned against Him. So He has every right to to stand before them and condemn them and call them to faith and repentance. And then lastly, Jesus is greater than Jonah with respect to His power. Jesus is greater than Jonah with respect to His power. Jonah had no ability to save the Ninevites. Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus gives faith and repentance. Jesus has the power to forgive sin. This is what we read in John chapter 4, verse 10. What does Jesus say to the woman at the well? If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand that Christ is still offering to us that living water today. Right? God promises to spare us just as He spared the Ninevites. But we must come to Him in faith and in repentance. And thankfully though, brothers and sisters, the message of, of repent or be destroyed isn't the only message, is it? Surely that's not the only message that Jonah preached himself. Right? With that message, what follows it is the cross. What follows it is Christ crucified. What follows it is the grace that God extends to sinners. What follows it is, is telling sinners today that, that Jesus says, whoever comes to me I will not cast out. That Jesus says that he will... That, that all who ask will be given, that those who seek will find, that those who knock the door will be opened. This is what Nineveh believed. Not only a message of condemnation, but they also believed and, and had hope in the, in the grace and the mercy of God. And so we have to ask this day, brothers and sisters, do you, do you believe the same as well as, as Nineveh did? Do you believe in the grace and the mercy of God? Do you believe that God has spared you from the wrath to come. Right? Do you believe in His unchangeableness, in His faithfulness, in His truthfulness, in His justice, in His mercy, in His love? If not, what, what is that obstacle that's standing in your way of trusting and in believing? Because as that message that goes out, that is confronting sinners with condemnation, when it draws to an end, when it ceases no more, as Christ returns, there will only be two sides to be on. Let us be those who stand with the Ninevites in in judgment against the world who had rejected Christ. As God says that at that time when He returns, those who have rejected Christ will look on Him whom they have pierced and mourn. Brothers and sisters, let us not be those who mourn and who wail when Christ returns. 
Let us be those who rejoice and are glad when He returns, knowing that our sin has been pardoned, knowing that God has spared us and He has spared our lives along with all those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. Please, if you would, bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for Your, your Word this day that although we are, are met with terror and fear upon uh, the preaching of repentance or destruction, it is always met with hope. Uh, you offer to us that, that living water through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that you have enabled us, that you have caused us, just like the Ninevites, to believe. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to open our minds and our, and our hearts to your word this morning, Lord, that you would have used the Spirit to, to teach us all that You would have us to know through our text this morning, Lord, that You would continue uh, day after day to teach us more about Yourself and to help us become better interpreters of Your Word. And so, Father, we come before You this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.